take your, uh, your Bibles out and open up to Mark chapter 8. We'll be looking at verses 11 to 21 this morning. And as always, if you forgot your copy of God's Word, just flip the bulletin over. It's on the back. We've got you covered here at Grace Life. We are here to cover your shame, okay? There's no shame here at Grace Life. So we'll be looking together at Mark chapter 8, verses 11 to 21. We read, the Pharisees came and began to argue with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. And he sighed deeply in his spirit and said, why does this generation seek a sign? Truly I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. And he left them, got into the boat again, and went to the other side. Verse 14. Now they had forgotten to bring bread, and they had only one loaf with them in the boat. And he cautioned them, saying, Watch out. Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. And they began discussing with one another the fact that they had no bread. And Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive or understand are your hearts hardened? Having eyes, do you not see? And having ears, do you not hear? And do you not remember? When I broke the five loaves for the five thousand, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they said to him, Twelve. And the seven for the four thousand, how many basketfuls of broken pieces did you take up? And they said to him, Seven. And he said to them, do you not yet understand? Let's pause and pray. Father, we ask this morning that you would open the eyes of our hearts to see wonderful things from your law, from your word. We know they're already there. We just ask for the eyes to see them. And Father, we, we just sense your presence here this morning singing these praise songs and being reminded of your finished work on the cross, we are just, we are comforted by the Spirit of your Son who testifies to our hearts that we are children of God through faith. That you are well pleased with us because of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And so we defy our doubt this morning. We defy our unbelief. We defy our consciences that testify against us continually, that we are finding our refuge and our hope and our strength in the cross of Christ. And that is our fuel to worship you, to sing to you, to share the gospel with our, with our neighbors, to repent of our sins and to ask for forgiveness from those that we love. It fuels everything, Lord. And it begins here this morning for this week, Lord. Father, once again, open the eyes of our hearts to see Christ in this Scripture and bring about lasting change in our hearts, Lord, that we'll look back millions of years from now. And once again, we'll circle this date on the calendar and say that was a date where things really began to change in my heart, Lord. 
May that be the case for each and every one of us, Lord. May we continually be changed by encountering the Word of God, as Romans 12 says. We are continually being renewed in our mind as we gaze upon the glories and the beauties of Christ. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. And amen. Well, this morning's sermon is called Christless Christianity. I know it's not one of those Advent, Christmas type, feel-good messages, okay? But we are, we are uh, we're preaching through the Gospel of Mark, and oftentimes with expository preaching, you bump into texts that many times you might want to avoid. Because throughout the Word of God, we are frequently given warnings. Um, and this warning actually comes from the lips of Jesus Christ Himself. Now, this is a scary thought, but what would it look like if Christianity was completely eradicated from the face of the earth? What would it look like? I mean, what would happen to society if the person and the work of Jesus Christ was never talked about again? Nobody ever mentioned it. You know, all the Christians were zapped out of this world, and uh, Satan took full control of this world. What would it look like? Chaos. You would think? Because that question was asked by the great Presbyterian theologian, Donald Gray Barnhouse. And he asked that question, he posed that question during his weekly radio broadcast. And it was uh, over 60 years ago. In Barnhouse, he frightened his listeners when he said this. He said, if Satan took over this city, he said, quote, all of the bars would be closed, pornography banished, and pristine streets would be filled with tidy pedestrians who smiled at each other. And there would be no swearing. The children would say, yes, sir, and no, ma'am. Check this out. And the churches would be full every Sunday where Christ is not preached. Barnhouse said this. He said, what is Christless Christianity? What does a Christless world look like? Not what you might think at first. It might actually surprise you and frighten you. And that is why our text this morning is so important. All of God's Word is profitable, as we saw last week. And this text is so important because in this text, Jesus is warning His disciples, and then consequently all of us, about the dangers of Christless Christianity, of a Christless religion. And if you're a guest this morning, we are currently making our way through the Gospel of Mark. And in this part of the Gospel of Mark, Jesus has just returned from mission trip. He's been out preaching the gospel to, uh, to foreigners, and he's just come back to the nation of Israel. And when he arrives back at home, he's immediately confronted by the Pharisees, who were these really aggro Bible thumper guys that were always following around and, and finding fault with everything that he did. And so we read when Jesus returned to Israel, to his hometown, they didn't have a ticker tape parade there, right? They weren't waiting for him at the airport. Instead, they were waiting to pounce on him. Check out verse 11. We read this. Now the Pharisees came and began to argue with him. Just got off the boat. And it says, The Pharisees came, began to argue with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. Now, this is very important. If you want to underline or highlight that word test in your Bible or on your electronic device, that word test, it's, it doesn't refer to like this, you know, innocent question or it doesn't refer to the Pharisees asking questions to, uh, to seek after greater truths from the Bible. That's not the idea behind this word test here. The word test here is actually parazo in the Greek, and it means to actually tempt someone. To test someone with the purpose of making that person stumble. In fact, 
this exact same word is used back in Mark chapter 1, and there it's actually translated as the word tempt. Mark chapter 1, it says Jesus was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted, same word, by Satan. And he was with the wild animals and the angels were ministering to him. This word test by the Pharisees, they were testing him, which means they were actually trying to tempt him to stumble. Now I know what you're thinking. You're asking yourself, why in the world would the Pharisees asking Jesus to show them a sign from heaven be a temptation? Well, the reason is this. The Pharisees knew the Old Testament very well. And they knew this. The only way that you can kill a heretic, and they thought Jesus was a heretic, they thought he was a false teacher. The only way that you could could actually kill a heretic is they had to preach heresy and then you had to see them do a miracle from heaven, and then you could kill them. So this is serious. They were actually trying to invoke what's, what's called Deuteronomy 13 on them. And listen to the Deuteronomy 13. It's kind of long, so I didn't put it on the, on the overhead. But listen to this. If a prophet or a dreamer of dreams arises among you and gives you a sign or a wonder, and the sign or wonder that, tell, that he tells you comes to pass, and he says to you, let us go after other gods which you have not known, and let us serve them. That's exactly what they thought Jesus was doing. They thought Jesus was saying, hey, come after this other God, this God of grace. Deuteronomy 13 says, you shall not listen to the words of that prophet or that dreamer of dreams, for the Lord your God is testing you to know whether you love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul. Listen to this, verse 5 of Deuteronomy 13. It says, but that prophet... Or that dreamer of dreams shall be put to death because he has taught rebellion against the Lord your God. You know, why do we read in the Gospels six different times the Pharisees saying, Hey, Jesus, show us a sign, man. Just show us signs that you're real, that you're the Messiah. We want to know. We want to see some legit stuff here. It wasn't because they were actually seeking after the truth. No, they thought he was a heretic. They hated Jesus, and they wanted evidence to incriminate himself. And so they said, do a sign for us so we can basically kill you. That's why they were so eager for a sign. And listen, uh, what Jesus does is he actually walks away. He flees the drama because Jesus doesn't argue with people. You see that throughout the Gospels. I mean, when you continually have to run into people that always want to think their ministry is to undermine your ministry, the best thing to do is just to walk away and not to engage in dialogue because you're not going to change their mind. And so Jesus does that. And look what it says. It says, and he sighed deeply in his spirit. He's like, dude, what did they put on Facebook now? Oh, gosh, you know. He sighs deeply in his spirit, and he said, why does this generation seek a sign? Truly I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. And he left them. He got into the boat again, it says. Again. He just got there. And he went to the other side. Let's show the next slide here. This is amazing to me. Jesus... He comes from the city of Hippos over there, okay? That's the Decapolis. He's come from foreign territory. He sailed across to Magdala on the left there of the Sea of Galilee. He arrives, steps off the boat, gets into an a, a argument and says, you know what, I'm out of here. Gets back into the boat. I mean, you're just rigging it up there in the pilings. He's like, hold on, we're leaving, okay? He jumps back in the boat and he, he actually sails over to Bethsaida up there on the northeast side of the Sea of Galilee. He actually leaves. He sails back to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, because he fled the drama. He did not stick around and argue with the Pharisees. That's how he approached conflict in his ministry. 
Now, this is really where this text hits home for us. Because it's what Jesus says next that really hits us, and it really shakes us. This is what he says to his disciples in that boat. Let's look at verse 14 here. And they had forgotten to bring bread. And they only had one loaf. And Jesus cautioned them, saying, Watch out, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. Now, I know this is, this is some of the strange sayings in the Bible because you're thinking to yourself, leaven, what, what, the leaven of the Pharisees, the leaven of Herod? Leaven in the Bible refers to, uh, it refers basically to something like yeast. It refers to something that makes something rise. You take something pure like a piece of dough and you add some mixture into it, a little bit of yeast, and all of a sudden that dough rises. It goes from being a wheat thin to a crouton, Okay. And Jesus is saying, beware of the influence, that yeast that permeates and invades everything about what's pure. Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. Jesus is warning them about two different temptations that might overtake the disciples and invade their Christian lives. Now, what are these temptations? These are very important temptations because, as I said at the beginning, they not only affect the disciples, they actually affect all of us until Jesus returns. And the first type of, of temptation is the yeast of Herod. And I'm going to address that first because I think that's probably the bigger temptation in our culture today. Because the yeast of Herod, the influence of Herod, refers to what we would call liberalism. Liberalism. Liberalism is just the belief that, listen, I believe in God, and so it doesn't matter how I live. Right? That was Herod's religion to a T. Third generation Jewish ruler. He hobnobs it up with the Sadducees, the guys who hold the keys to the temple. Uh, he even does uh, financial favors for the temple. He keeps the Jews appeased. And, and basically, he does whatever he wants on the side. He lives his life however he wants. I mean, he stole his brother's wife, had John the Baptist beheaded, and he throws raging parties where people get plastered and underage girls strip. That's the life of Herod. And so he's over here claiming to be this Jewish pious king, and on the side, he's basically living life however he wants. But here's the deal. If you ask Herod, Herod, are you a believer in God? Herod would say, of course. Are you kidding me? Of course I'm a believer in God. How can you not believe in Yahweh God? I mean, he created everything we see. I mean, how can you doubt there's a God when you see the double helix structure of a DNA molecule? I mean, you have to be an idiot to believe in evolution. I mean, Herod was totally someone that would say he was a believer in Yahweh God. And so if you tried to evangelize Herod, he'd say, whoa, 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 time out, time out. Same team, same team, bro. You don't need to evangelize me. I already believe in God. In fact, I love hearing John the Baptist preach. I have all the sermons on my iPod. And you'd be like, hold on a second, the same John the Baptist you had beheaded, that guy? That's the guy, yeah. (laughs) All of his sermons, I love them. Total disconnect here between what he says he believes and how he lives. Total disconnect. His religion was one of all words but had no deeds. And the liberalism, the yeast of King Herod, I think is what we see in our culture today because there's a lot of people, especially at Christmas times, everyone believes, Right? Except for the people saying happy holidays, right? Everyone else believes, though. Everyone else is a Christian. And the Bible warns us that faith without works, it's not followed up without, with, with works, okay? It is a useless faith. It's a dead faith. In fact, James says something that I think addresses our liberal culture today to a T. Listen to what James says. He says, someone will say, 
you have faith and I have works. James says, listen, bro, show me your faith apart from your works, but I'll show you my faith by my works. He says, you believe that God is one? Great job. Even the demons believe and shudder. They tremble. James is saying this. He's saying, listen, mere profession, mere intellectual assent to Bible knowledge is not enough. Because true faith, whenever true faith is legit in a person's heart, it will always manifest itself with good works, with a transformed life. And so James says, you could be a pastor's kid. Uh, you may love hearing sermons preached. You may know Jesus' middle name, okay? But Bible knowledge alone is not enough to save you. It's worthless because there's a big difference between actually knowing the Bible and believing the Bible. Big difference. In fact, think about this. The smartest people biblically in the New Testament were all lost. This is crazy. Do you know the number two, the second smartest biblical group in the New Testament? Pharisees and the scribes, number two. Experts memorized the Old Testament and they missed Jesus. They missed the point of it. The smartest theologians in the New Testament are demons. I mean, demons always get Jesus right. Jesus walks into a temple and the demons go, Ah, Jesus, you're the God. You know, they, they freak out because they know who he is. And James says this, he says, listen, you may go to seminary and God grades your paper and puts, you have demon faith, bro. Great job. You know what I'm saying? 100%. And James says, but if it's not enough to save you, that kind of faith is youth, useless because when Jesus returns, he's not coming back with like a scantron and a bunch of number two pencils, okay? And he's going to give us like a theological quiz. He's coming back for a transformed people who love God and it's manifested by their love for people, love for their neighbors. And that's why Joshua says in Joshua 24, he says this, he says, choose you this day whom you will serve. It's so important to point this out to someone that holds to a liberal position. They're like, you know what? As long as I believe, I can do whatever I want. Joshua says, choose you this day whom you're going to serve. God's not expecting perfection. That's impossible in the Christian life. But he is expecting you to be decisive. To make a break and to say, I am decisively following Jesus Christ. And so Jesus warns about the yeast of Herod. Of, of mingling in liberalism and saying, yeah, I have a little bit of Christianity over here and I have kind of like a, a Tupperware Christianity. Over here's my Christian belief and then over here's my other beliefs in my life. So Jesus warns about the first kind of, of yeast, the yeast of Herod. The second kind of yeast is, it's a little bit more seductive. It's the yeast of the Pharisees or it's what we call around here legalism, okay? And just to contrast these two yeasts, uh, the yeast of Herod, liberalism, says I believe in God so it doesn't matter how I live. Legalism, though, completely different. It says, God loves me because I live so good. I mean, I got it going on. So I don't know if you've seen my walk. Have you seen my Bible? It's all torn up. It's all bright. Pages are falling out. I read so much. Have you seen my walk? It's like you walk in a church, you're like, they're about to see Jesus, folks. Bam. You know, you just walk in. That's kind of the idea behind legalism. And the Pharisee, the Pharisee yeast, guys, is our kind of yeast. Let's just be honest. This is our kind of yeast. We're prone to this kind of yeast. And the Pharisees were a group of people that believed the reason that God loved them, approved of them, and accepted them was because they obeyed so much. That's what Jesus said in Luke 18. He told a parable. And he said, He told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous. And they treated others with contempt. He said, Two men went up into the temple to pray. 
One a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. Listen to this. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector, pointing people out in the temple, dude. Because I fast twice a week, and I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And Jesus says, listen, I tell you, this man, the tax collector, went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. The one who humbles himself will be exalted. This, this scripture, I know it's so familiar, but this summarizes the yeast of the Pharisees because that's how they approached religion. And listen, this is our kind of yeast because no sooner than you start going to church and you start shaving, you know, some of you have commented on my beard, actually. This is actually a renovation vow. Until I finish my renovation of my house, I'm not shaving, okay? So when you see me shaved, you know the job is done. But when we start coming to church and we start, you know, shaving and we start getting our act together a little bit, all of a sudden it's like we, we think God and us are like sort of like, you know, we're telling everyone else how the Christian life should be lived, you know? I mean, we start reading the Bible and praying at meals and covering our, light, our eyes during that Bud Light commercial, you know? You know the one I'm talking about. We cover our eyes, right? And all of a sudden, it's like we walk around with our chest pumped out like we're Jesus Jr., you know what I'm saying? We do, we think that. And we we kind of like, yeah, I got saved, you know, back in 1963, and before then, I was a sinner a little bit. But you know, God asked me to come on his team and help this Christianity thing get off the ground, Deltona, so I'm kind of here helping out, you know? And it's sort of like God owes me one, Right? Because I come and I serve and I give my money, it's so easy to slide into that. To feel like God owes us one. But here's the deal. When we view our acceptance of God as based upon our obedience, that's tremendously insulting to God. Tremendously insulting. Let me, let me give you an illustration here, okay? Of how insulting legalism is. I recently, I, I got this very, I would just say this. It, it was the most beautiful wedding invitation I've ever gotten in my life. Bar none, okay? Nothing touched this. This wedding invitation, it had beautiful calligraphy on it, like old English calligraphy. Um, it was written on really nice paper. It even had real wax and a seal on it to open it. I mean, it was awesome. It was legit. Best wedding invitation ever received. Here's the problem, though. It was so nice and so heavy that one postage stamp wouldn't cover the delivery. And so... This is really awkward, but the mailman came to my house and knocked on the door and asked me to pay him to deliver the packet, the, the letter. <laughs> this is a real story here. And, and so uh, I was kind of skeptical because I've never in my life had a mailman come and ask me for money at my door. And I'm like, I almost felt like asking him, if I give you this quarter, you promise not to blow it on booze? Because it was seriously, it was 22 cents short on postage. He's like, you owe me 22 cents. And so I was almost like, you promise you're not going to go blow this on something? Um, because it was, it was different. But, but anyway, I paid him. You know, I just gave him a quarter, told him to keep the change, tippage, you know, all that. And uh, so I opened this letter up. I'm like, what, what's, what's so heavy? I opened it up. This beautiful wedding invitation. Amazing. Inviting me to a celebration. DJ's been paid. Caterer's been paid. Celebration, friends, family, it's all going to be there, right? How foolish would it be for me to show up there and lean over when I'm eating my chicken cordon bleu and elbow the guy next to me, I'm like, yeah, I paid my way here, bro. Paid, totally paid my way here. I paid 22 cents postage, man. I totally deserve to be here. You know what I'm saying? Everyone else here came free, right? I mean, how insulting would that be to the host? They paid for all this. I gave 22 cents. My little obedience, somehow I think, is securing all this? That's the folly of legalism. 
is we think that our small obedience in this life somehow is, is better and greater than the obedience of the God of heaven leaving and coming to earth and dying on a cross and absorbing all of God's wrath against our sin. It's crazy. It's crazy. But legalism is our yeast. And I would say this. It's probably easier today to be a legalist than ever because we see so much nominal Christianity. I mean, it's all over the place. I mean, half-hearted Christians are everywhere when you turn around. And so I, I think it's almost easier to be a legalist today than it was 100 or 200 years ago. It's just so, because everyone's kind of like, yeah, Jesus is my homeboy, you know? But they're sort of like half in and half out. I mean, surveys today tell us this. This, this blew me away the first time I heard it. Surveys today say that Christians who would consider themselves to be committed, okay, I'm all in, come to church twice a month. In fact, among younger Christians, it's 1.6 times per month they come to church. So basically, they come up after the sermon, they're like, dude, pastor, that was awesome. You nailed it. I'm on fire. I'll see you in two weeks, okay? Unless the beach is appealing, it's too cold, right? Or I stay up too late watching the UFC fight. But either way, I'll see you in two weeks. That's how, kind of how it is today. It's people that say, I'm sold out for Jesus, are about 50% involved. That's the culture we live in. And so I think it's so easy to see such nominalism in the body of Christ and to feel yourself like superior. Like, listen, I don't come two, two out of four. I come four out of four. I come five out of four when there's five Sundays in a month, bro. I think it's so easy because we live in a day like that. But here's the deal. A couple hundred years ago, Christians were actually burned at the stake for their faith and they didn't think a thing of it. They weren't boasting about it. I mean... It, it, a husband will be sitting down for dinner with his wife, and he'll be like, honey, don't forget, next Sunday I'm going to be burned at the stake for uh, refusing to renounce Jesus before the king, and uh, just take care of the kids and bury me in an unmarked grave. I love you, okay? And the wife was like, that's nice, honey. I'll tell the kids and pass the butter. I mean, it was like totally like, they're, they're, they were so sold out for Jesus that even when they died, like these horrible deaths, they were like, hey, listen, bury me in an unmarked grave. I want no one to even know what I... They didn't have a, like a Zondervan book deal, okay, when they went to the stake because they were so sold out for Jesus. And yet today, in our culture, I think it's so easy to look around at nominalism and, and think that we're superior, that somehow, you know what? I come four times a month, bro. And we have to remind ourselves, gang, when we start falling into this mindset like we're better than other people, we have to remind ourselves of a quote I heard recently that was awesome. It's that God's not calling you to do anything new. It's just your turn. So often we're like, man, I'm nailing it. Listen, people have been following Jesus for 2,000 years. Laying down their lives for 2,000 years. I mean, take a mission trip to like Africa. Take a mission trip somewhere where people are actually losing their heads and their lives for the gospel. God's not calling us to anything new here. It's just our turn. Because in the kingdom of God, it's actually, it's next man up. And when the last generation goes down, it's our time to lead. And so we have to remember, whenever we serve God, whatever we do for God, whether we tithe or we give or we serve, we're not earning brownie points with God. God loves our obedience. He cherishes it. But it doesn't make us acceptable in the eyes of God. And we have to remind ourselves, when we start falling into feeling superior to other people, listen, everything we have down here is a stewardship. It's all God's anyway. I mean, whether it's your health or your intellect or your money, money's a big thing. People give money, it's like, oh my gosh, a person, they give money, of course, it's God's. But here's the deal. Everything that we have, 
we've been given by God. And that's why it's so foolish to fall into legalism because you're trying to buy God off with things He already owns. It's like, God, I'll serve you and I'll follow you and I'll give you, I won't give you 10%. I'll give you 11% of my income if you promise to send me to heaven at the end of my life. God leans back in his easy chair with a toothpick and he goes, that's cute, bro. But I already own all that. It's already mine. I gave you your wealth. I gave you your intellect. I gave you everything you have. And so why are you trying to buy me off with things that I already own? That's what makes legalism so foolish. I love Psalm 100. I was thinking about this week. Verse 3 says, Know that the Lord, He is God. It's He who made us and we are His. Literally in the Hebrew, we belong to Him. We're His. We're the sheep of His pasture. That's who we are. I mean, how foolish would it be if you're driving by and you're out in, you know, I don't know, Bithlow or something, and you're driving by and you see this huge acreage, you know, and there's this pasture and there's all these sheep, and you see one sheep out there boasting against the farmer, right? He's out there in the pasture like, bah. he's like, bet you're glad you got me out here, Mr. Farmer. Who else would eat all this grass, right, and sleep in your barn, your nice warm barn, you know? You would never see a sheep bragging to the, to the farmer right, about how valuable they were because, listen, we're God's sheep. He cares for us. Everything we have is a stewardship. And that's what makes legalism so foolish. So these are two yeasts, all right? The yeast of Herod and the yeast of the Pharisees. And two different temptations that we fall into, we can fall into in the Christian life. Now here's the question. Why does Jesus tie these two temptations together? This is the the most important question to get this morning. Why does Jesus tie these two temptations together? Because if you look again, back at verse 15, he cautioned them saying, watch out. Beware of the leaven, a specific leaven. Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. Two different leavens, two different temptations, but he links them together. Why? It's because both of these temptations are temptations to skirt God. Both liberalism and legalism are self-willed, autonomous ways to live your life. They're both the same. They're both temptations towards Christless religion. And the reason that Jesus is warning his disciples against Christless Christianity is because they were already falling into that pattern. I mean, look at the context of where we're at. I mean, Jesus says, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Herod, and look, look at what the disciples do. And they began discussing with one another the fact they had no bread. They're like having a panic attack. We don't have any bread. He's talking about bread. We don't got no bread. And Jesus, aware of this, said to them, why are you discussing the fact? Listen, you guys ain't got no bread. You just saw me. I multiplied the loaves. I fed 5,000 people over here, 4,000 folks over there. Are your hearts hardened? I mean, this is amazing to think about, but they're in a boat with the creator of the universe. This guy's a walking bakery on two legs, right? Wherever he goes, there's food. And he's sitting like two feet away from them, maybe a foot and a half. I don't know. I wasn't there. But he's sitting like two feet away. And they are already falling into this self-sufficient, autonomous, I'm going to do it my own way. I don't even need to ask Jesus for anything, way of living their life. And so Jesus warns them because he knows their hearts. They're already falling into a self-willed, autonomous way of living their lives. And that eventually burns us out, guys. It eventually burns us out. And so Jesus ties these two yeasts together because these are two different ways that people go about living their lives apart from God. 
You know, there's, there's actually two ways to run from God, okay? There's two ways. You can run from God by breaking all the rules, being a bad boy, okay? Bobby Brown or whatever. You can run and you can just go crazy, hog wild, and you can break all the rules. That's one way to run from God. A second way, though, and a more subtle way to run from God is by trying to keep all the rules in your own power. That's a second way to run from God. And I know it's common for us to sort of view... Um, oh, here we go. Here's a quote first by Gerhard Forty. He said, you can either be addicted to what is evil or what is good. You can be addicted to what is lawless or lawfulness, but there is really no difference in God's eyes. They both break the relationship to God, the giver of life. It's a great quote. It's like both of these temptations, both of these leaven, both of these yeasts are temptations to live a life apart from God. And can we click to this next slide, brother? Thanks. We tend to view liberalism and legalism as like direct opposites. And we, we look at like liberalistic Christians and we think, you know what, they've got too much grace. They're erring on the side of too much grace. And then we look at legalistic Christians and we're like, they have too much law. They're erring on the side of too much law. And we always say things like, we've got to balance it out, we've got to balance grace with law, we've got to kind of like aim here in the middle. And that's kind of how we view these two different leavens. But that's actually not the way to view things. The next slide shows us liberalism and legalism are actually the same thing. They come from the same root. They are both self-sufficient ways of living your life versus the grace way, the God-sufficient way, is the right way, the biblical way. And so liberalism and legalism aren't so much opposite of each other, they're actually opposite of grace. And so you actually, it's impossible to preach too much grace. It's impossible. Because you're pointing people to God the source, the sustenance of our salvation, of our good works, of our joy, of everything. And that is why Jesus ties these two things together. Because both legalism and liberalism, they want nothing at all to do with God. Nothing. I know it's easy for us to see the worldliness of someone like King Herod and think, you know what? That's Christless Christianity right there. That's Christless religion. That's godless religion. It's easy for us to kind of like point the finger at that but so often, we tend to view people that are very rules-driven and very legalistic as sort of like people that really love God. But the truth is, they really don't. And, and this hits us where we live, friends. I find my heart so addicted to wanting to relate to God on the basis of what I do. And when I fall into that pattern, that proves that I don't love God. It proves that, that, that I'm trying to use the law as a way to protect me from God. Sort of like, you know, the old saying, an apple a day keeps the doctor away. Well, a, a commandment obeyed keeps God away. Because if I keep the law, and I keep these written rules, and even rules that aren't written in here, if I can just keep these things, and I never have to go and ask God for forgiveness, I never have to go back to people and humble myself and ask for forgiveness, I never have to admit I'm wrong, what I can basically do is keep all of these things, or at least think I am, and then I can get a big bullhorn, and I can stand next to God, and we can yell at everyone that's not keeping these rules and tell them to be more like us. That's sort of like a temptation of legalism. It's, it's a way to stiff arm and to keep God at arm's length. And, you know, you think about it, the reason why legalism is so seductive is because you can actually backslide. You can actually backslide while going to church more than you ever have in your entire life. You can actually be busy, busier than a windmill, okay? You're going 24-7, going hard after God. And at the exact same time, fall into like a godless, Christless approach to religion. And, and that's why this warning from Galatians 5 from Paul, is, it's just so, I think it's so appropriate for this morning as we reflect upon the Lord's table. 
Paul says this, you're severed from Christ. You've been cut off, bro. You who would be justified by the law. You people who are, who are seeking earnestly, you're analytical about every last jot and tittle, which is a good thing. It can be a good thing. But you are so focused on keeping that to make yourself acceptable to God. That's the big difference. That you have actually cut yourself off from Christ. You've fallen into Christless Christianity. You've separated God from His law. You've extracted both of them from each other. And this is a scary verse because we fall into this mindset of seeking to be justified, being declared acceptable and righteous, and like God puts a smiley face next to our, our, our name in heaven because somehow we're, we're doing more than the nominal folks. Paul says this, you've actually cut yourself off from Christ. And when we fall into that mindset, guys, listen, we actually misunderstand the main purpose of the law. The number one purpose, the main purpose of the law is actually to be a tutor, the Bible says, to drive us to Christ. When we hear the law preached, that should be the, the number one thing in our hearts is, listen, I, I don't keep this, and I need to be forgiven like now, like ASAP, I need Jesus. That should be our number one purpose. And listen, that, that's why Tommy and I, we strive. I know we strive to be faithful in the pulpit, and we strive to basically open the Word of God, even sobering passages like this, and let them hit us where we live, because here's the deal. Without that, we're not going to have any emphasis to be driven into the arms of Christ. <laughs> Unless you see how bad things are, even as Christians, you're not going to see a recurring need for Jesus. And I know people will say to me from time to time after I preach, they'll say things like, you know, I, I kind of felt like I was under attack Sunday. I've heard that before quite a few times. You know, I almost felt like you were beating up on us, and I kind of felt like you could have given us more credit. I mean, are things really that bad? I never say, man, I'm so sorry. I didn't mean to make you feel. I never say that. I'm actually like, good, you were listening, you know? And I'm always quick to say, listen, I don't keep this either. I don't give any kind of appearances that I'm keeping this. And basically, you got a 45-minute talk. I've been in it all week. I've been in it 25 hours. I mean, my wife will tell you, Saturday night repentances, you know, coming, like, you know, boogers and snot and crying. And everything. I mean, it's because this has been hitting me all week, and I'm like, I don't keep any of this. And so Tommy and I, we seek to be faithful, open the Word of God up. It's not because we're trying to get on to you. It's because this is what the law does. The law shows us our need for Jesus. That's what it does. Because it's that tutor that drives us into the arms of Christ. And so if you feel like you're under attack when you hear the Word of God preach, it's actually a good sign that you're listening. Because the law always accuses. Lex semper accusa, the reformer said. The law always accuses. And so we should never come and hear the Word of God preach and be like, man, thanks, I'm nailing it all. Appreciate the pep talk should never be the case. Because we all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And that's why we have to be so careful, gang, because we're all naturally self-justifiers, everyone. I mean, sin wants to do two things in your life. Sin wants to express itself and then excuse itself. That's what sin wants to do. And we are naturally, we're experts at it. And so, I mean, you, you look at a text like 2 Samuel chapter 7 where King David, the man that the Bible says was the man after God's own heart. He steals another man's wife, has her husband killed, right? And somehow, if you do the math in 2 Samuel 7, he rationalizes that away in his conscience for over a year. He goes to church, everything's fine. Praise God! I mean, he's, he's on the front row. It's business as usual for over a year. If you do the math... Somehow, in his mind, he had jury-rigged his conscience to think, you know what, everything I've done is okay. 
And then God has to send a prophet to him to say, listen, bro, you're the man. You did this heinous thing, and then God's like broken. Then all the Psalms come, right? Then he can't stop writing Psalms about what he did. He's like, David, it's time to get over that. He's like, no, I gotta write a Psalm. You know, he, he's like broken. He's like, he's like all over it. But that text is written to show us that even the best of men can rationalize away the worst of offenses. That's one of the reasons that's in Scripture, because we are all, we're all self-justifiers. We all want to make ourselves feel like somehow we're keeping the law, and you know what? It sounded like you took that text out of context, maybe, and it's really hitting me where I live. Listen, when the law is preached, never double down. That's what the Pharisees did. They doubled down. They got dug in. They got a little defensive. When the law convicts you, run to Jesus. That's what he's there for. And when the law is preached, when the law is preached, and you hear it and it accuses you, I heard it said one time, the law should sound like the war of the world sirens. You know those evil alien pods that go before they attack? Have you guys seen, no one's seen War of the Worlds here, the new Tom, Tom Cruise one, the better one? Well, these alien pods, they make this really ominous sound before they attack. I've heard it said the law should sound that way when it's actually opened and unsheathed before all of us. It's like prepare to be exterminated because the law sends us back into the arms of Christ. And that's why it's so important to listen with an open heart when the word of God is open because otherwise we'll be tempted to fall into the yeast of the Pharisees. I'm going to close with this. You know, I was, I was at Walmart recently and I, and I decided to go through the self-checkout line, which I never recommend. And uh, yeah, this is going to relate. I know sometimes you're like, where is he going? It's, it's going to come back. Um, so I go through the self-checkout line. I run all my items over the little window. Doo -doo -doo -doo. You know, I bag them and then I pay and then I go. And so I have to like make it around that gatekeeper lady. You know, the one you avoid eye contact with so you can slip by her, you know, because she's going to check your receipt. Especially at the Orange City Walmart, bro. I mean, that's like, they have those alien pods from War of the Worlds out there and you cannot make it out of that place without looking at your receipt. But I'm leaving and so this lady stops me and she goes, let me see your receipt. And so I'm just like, I, I get agitated because I'm like, dude... I'm a pastor. I ain't trying to steal nothing, man. Why are you stopping me? It's because I got tattoos. Is that what it is or whatever? And you know, it's, so she stops and she looks at my receipt and she says, uh, where are the diapers? I said, what are you talking about? Where are the diapers? She goes, uh, I don't see your diapers on here. You got a box of diapers. I don't see it. I took the receipt out of her hand. Sure enough, no diapers on the receipt. $15 box of diapers. Like, they're like 18 bucks, really. I mean, goodness. Box of diapers, not on the receipt. Despite my best efforts and my best intentions, I thought, I fully thought, I was not trying to steal anything, I fully thought I was keeping the law, but her scrutinizing me, and her taking their seat out and looking at my life and saying, here's what you said you bought, here's what you really bought, here's the difference, that allowed me to see the error of my way, repent, which means go back to the register at Walmart, and get things right, right? So I went back to the register and I paid, but without her scrutiny, without her being the voice of the law, I would have never known I needed to go back and get that right, I would have been oblivious to my sin, to my error. And that's the way that the law should work in the life of a Christian. That's exactly the way the law works in your life. Listen to Helmut Tillich, and I'll let you go. This is the best quote I've ever read on the purpose of the law for a Christian. Before conversion, the law is a wolf. It kills. But after salvation, the law has become a sheepdog. I love that. We're a sheep, right? He's a sheepdog. And his purpose is to recall the members of the flock to the path of the shepherd. We're kind of like wandering off, you know, near a huge cliff or some grass over there, and we're like, nah, nah. and the sheepdog, it comes in, it brings it back. Listen, this is the best part, though, because this is where a lot of people miss it. Now, it is the shepherd who does the leading, not the, not the dog. 
It is not the dog, but the shepherd who is the center and focal point of the flock, the one to whom the, shep- the sheep know themselves related. I love this. This is what the sheep do. The sheep dog does. Comes, runs over, says, you're about to kill yourself, bro. And if, you, if you're looking for satisfaction, life, happiness, it's actually found back this way with the shepherd. Because so often we, we wander off the pasture. But the sheepdog, it no longer kills us, friends, like before salvation. Now it's our friend. It's our helper. And when we see the law, when we bump up against the law, we should never double down as Christians, never dig our heels in, never become defensive. We should allow the sheepdog to take us right back to the shepherd. And I'll say this. The reason that Jesus warns us about the bread of the Pharisees and Herod is because he is our bread. That's what we're going to celebrate this morning. He is our bread. He came and died for our sins. He, he was broken for us on the cross. He ain't got nothing to prove. He ain't got nothing to hide. He got nothing to lose, Tim Keller says. And you can own the worst of offenses, even the offenses of King David. You can own those because you know you have a loving God in heaven who died for you. You're playing with house money. And when you hear the sheepdog, or if you feel accused this morning, just know it's not me or Tommy getting on to you. We're showing you the law so we can all cling to Christ and partake of him. Let's do that this morning.